Because of the nature of my work, I spend a lot of time with people who have suffered severe spiritual abuse. And uh, as a pastoral counselor, my job is to help them come to grips with that reality, come to grips with what happened, and then uh, seek God in their uh, answer. And that's a very difficult process sometimes because it's very easy to associate God with the abuse. And so the first thing we have to do is separate that out. We have to understand that while they may have been abused by men and women who, are, who said they were representing God, the fact is they were being um, abused by Satan himself, that that was evil masking as Christianity, masking as a Christian leader or even a Christian parent. Um, and so the, the challenge then is to separate out the abuse uh, as and, and, and preserve the, the, the name of God, the holiness and the, and the glory and the, and the um, uh, character of God for that person to, to separate that out, to, to contain it, uh, and, and, and make sure that they can find a way to make that distinction. Now, one of the biggest forms of abuse that I see happening on a very broad scale today is the lack of biblical exposition happening within pulpits. Uh, because I see people from dis difference in various churches, from time to time, I will have, and for other reasons as well, of my own reasons, um, I will listen to uh, sermons from preachers in my area, uh, just so I know what's, what's being said from the pulpits. And some are better than others. Uh, I know that most of them are well-intended. But there has been a style of preaching that has been adopted in the last, oh, 30 years that is really has more in common with entertainment and improvisation and even comedy than it does with actual biblical exposition. And it's, it really burdens me. It breaks my heart because I know the people in the pews are starving. In Amos 8.11, the prophet Amos 8.11, we read that there is going to be a day when there was a famine, not of bread, but of the word of God. Uh, let me read that to you. Amos 8.11, the days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst of water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. End quote. A famine of hearing the words of the Lord. So let me just encourage you that if you have a pastor who is actually feeding you and is actually taking biblical exposition serious, verse by verse, contextual exposition of the biblical text so that your mind and your soul are being fed the very words of God, um, then I want to encourage you to be very grateful for that and to understand, tragically, that is rare today. What is more common, of course, is as I just said, uh, you get a lot of fluff with some Bible passages 
thrown in, and a little bit of principle as well, biblical principle here and there. Uh, but you get so much fluff. All this personal self-disclosure, all these stories. I mean, if you're just in private, casual conversation, I'm sure it's wonderful to hear about stories of your vacation or stories about your children or uh, things that happen to you of a comical nature or even of a serious nature and, and on and on and on. And and if you're trying to draw some kind of point out of that kind of self-disclosure and that kind of conversation, then in a personal level, great, wonderful, you know? You don't even have to draw a point. But when you're behind the pulpit and 80% of your sermon is uh, telling jokes and giving personal disclosure or, or talking about your experiences of daily life, um, that's the misuse of the pulpit. And that, my friends, is abuse. It is spiritual abuse. And if you're experiencing that, if you're listening to sermons where maybe the first 10 or 15 minutes of that sermon is just this person, this man talking about things that have nothing to do with the text and trying to ingratiate you to himself. Now, as I say, in all fairness, most of these men, I believe, are well-intended. Um, they're, they're trying to make uh, the pulpit consumer-friendly, they're trying to come across in a way that's that's not scary for an unbeliever or a, quote, seeker, end quote, in the audience. Um, but they're teaching at such an elementary level when they actually do teach that that anybody who's been a Christian more than, for more than 30 days is starving to death under that kind of lack of teaching. So I encourage you to... Find uh, good exp expository preaching online wherever you can. Uh, and keep coming back to this uh, channel, this platform, because I intend to, to offer you that. I intend to bring that to you. So with that said, what we're doing today is we're, we're, we're beginning to go deeper into the letter to the Ephesians. The letter to the Ephesians is foundational to your spiritual, mental, and relational health as a Christian. And it's foundational because what Paul is doing in this letter, he's laying out two things. Very important to understand. What and how, how and what it means to be a Christian and what that looks like in your life. How it is that you came to be in union with Jesus Christ and what that union ought to look like. Remember, we all began our lives in Adam. We all began our lives walking in Adam, talking, and, and, and uh, our character displayed uh, the Adamic traits, which are so common throughout, or universal throughout the world. But at some point, God intervened. At some point, we were saved by sovereign grace, through the hearing of the word and through the work of the spirit, we were converted, we were regenerated, we were brought through the gift of faith into union with Jesus Christ. And at that moment, a rehabilitation, if you will, or rehabituation process began 
where you're moving away from the old Adamic way of thinking and living and into a renewed mind in which you are into ever-increasing conformity to the person of Jesus Christ, his way of thinking, his way of living. It's a powerful, uh, wonderful privilege that every Christian has that you are being conformed into the image of Christ. And I've said before, and I'll say it again, that God's paramount purpose in, in your life, which he is at work even now, if you are in Christ, you are in union with Christ, God's paramount purpose is to conform you into the image of his Son. That's God's paramount purpose. It's the purpose for which he causes all things to work together for good. So let me ask you then, the challenge for each one of us, you and I both, is that our paramount purpose? Is the paramount purpose of our life to become more like Jesus? Now, I realize we have all kinds of responsibilities, we have all kinds of obligations, and we have other goals and plans in life. But is the primary purpose of your life to become more like Jesus? I hope so. Because that's the will of God for you. It makes no sense to be praying for the knowledge of God's will on any other thing if that isn't your your paramount purpose. That's how you bring yourself into line, in fact, with the will of God in your life, is to begin there. Begin by knowing that you are working in cooperation with the Spirit who's at work in you to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. So what we're going to do today, we're going to begin to take a, a closer look at Ephesians. We're going to do a look at the introduction here, which is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. <clears throat> now, a lot of people just kind of blow through these first two verses in most of Paul's letters where he's doing an introduction as to who's writing and to whom he is writing. It's a, it was a common way of beginning letters in that day. But there are, there's a lot of substance in those first two verses that will be very helpful for you to understand the balance of the letter to the Ephesians if we can pause here and just take a good hard look at that first. So I want to take the next 20 minutes or so and I want to just help you understand these first two verses which seem on the surface to be so plain but have so much depth and have so much power in them, even though they're simply an introduction. Remember, even the introduction was inspired by the Holy Spirit. So let's begin there. Ephesians chapter 1. I'm only going to focus on the first two verses today. So settle in and let's dig in. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. End quote. So what we have here is we have this simple introduction as to who is writing the letter and to whom he is writing. Simple enough. But there's so much here. So we know that it's Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. 
So who is this Paul guy? Let me just briefly remind you that Paul wasn't always called Paul. He was once called Saul. That was his given name growing up. He was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. A very educated, very well-credentialed man. And he was, a, at first, a persecutor of the church, as you might recall. A violent persecutor. In fact, he was on, on the road to Damascus with papers to persecute and arrest men, women, and children in Damascus for the, the fact that he saw them as part of this heretical sect growing up within Judaism called Christianity. And, and, and of course, they didn't necessarily call it Christianity at that point. They call it the Nazarene sect. They call it other things. But Paul was determined to stamp it out. And he was very deliberate about this, very focused on this. It took an encounter by the risen Christ on the road to Damascus to stop him in his tracks. Let's look at that real briefly. Acts chapter 9. So here's Saul on the road to Damascus. And as he's with his associates, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice to say, voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He replied, Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Folks, this was a significant event. To be encountered by the risen Christ this, in this manner means that he was being saved, stopped on his determined path to hell. And Jesus encounters him, stops him, blinds him, and debilitates him from going any further. But the Lord sent a man by the name of Ananias to pray for him. To pray for Paul because he is a chosen instrument, the Lord said, to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to their kings and to the people of Israel. So God sent Ananias to Paul to pray for him. Paul um, received the Holy Spirit. Scales fell off his eyes. He was given food in his Christian journey began. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. So Paul, Paul spent some time in the early church, and then he spent some time in the Arabian desert, getting his head on straight, frankly, reframing his understanding of God, reframing his understanding of Jesus, reframing his understanding of the history of his own people, the Jewish people, so that he knew that he had been called by the risen Christ. And so let me just not speak for him. Let me just give you an idea 
by turning to Philippians chapter 3. And let Paul speak for himself here. Beginning with verse 3 of Philippians chapter 3. He says, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his Spirit. He's speaking now of uh, against those Jewish Christians who were insisting that the Gentiles become Jewish before they could become Christians. So Paul's warning against these men. And he says, For it is we who are the circumcision, who serve God by his Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Now this is a man who put every confidence in the flesh at one time in his life when he was a Pharisee. And now he puts only his confidence, he makes his only boast in Christ Jesus. Beautiful. Though I myself have reasons for such fleshly confidence, and he goes in to tell them, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, or, yes, comes through the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. There's the contrast. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And then he says this in verse 10, I want to know Christ. See? That's it. Period. All these credentials, everything that he once was, he now considers garbage. The only thing, the only treasure in his life is that he wants to know Christ. To know the power of his resurrection and participation in the suffer in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Just a couple other brief texts here. First Timothy chapter one verse twelve I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor, and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul went from being an arrogant, violent Pharisee to recognizing himself as the worst of sinners. That doesn't happen apart from a work of grace a work of grace, and now he's in Christ Jesus, and the passion, the zeal, the purpose of his life is 
to know Christ and to fulfill the calling to which he was called on the road to Damascus. So let's go back now to that our text in Ephesians chapter 1. So, Paul is an apostle. Now, the other point I want to make very emphatically is that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Listen, Paul is writing with authority. He's not just announcing that he's an apostle so you can give him accolades. He's not just bragging. He is saying, I have authority. Very important for you to understand that the authority that you submit to as a child of God is the revelation of God's self-revelation in his Son. A revelation that was handed down and given the stewardship to a group, a select group of men exclusively. And that is the twelve, the apostles. Paul is called an apostle as well, as one who was born late, he said. But that revelation was given to these men exclusively. Some of them were writing apostles, some of them weren't. But the revelation that we have is apostolic revelation, and it's exclusive, it's unique, it is final, and it is contained within the pages of our New Testament. Now, why am I so emphatic on that? Well, since the beginning, since even during the days of the apostles themselves, there were other men who came along and said, well, we too are apostles. But they were preaching a different gospel, preaching another gospel, preaching a gospel that would not save. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul comes to grips with this and gives a double apostolic curse on this other gospel. But that didn't stop those men. Throughout the apostolic mission, there were these alternative gospels and these alternative apostles, Satan's own minions, Satan's own ministers. And I'm telling you, they are at work today as well in the church. There's no shortage of superstar men, superstar ministers, who even consider themselves to be apostles. There's this thing called the New Apostolic uh, Reformation now, in which these uh, men believe, men and women believe, that they are apostles and they are prophets and they have a, a new word from God. They consider the Bible to be the old word of God and they have a new word, a fresh word from God for you. Don't believe them. Anybody that is going beyond what is written in your New Testament is not somebody to listen to. So Paul is speaking and writing as an apostle of Jesus Christ, someone who was appointed by Jesus Christ himself, the risen Christ himself. And so Paul's writing with exclusive, unique, and final authority. You know, too, that he says, an apostle of Christ Jesus. He didn't say Jesus Christ, which there's nothing wrong with, of course, but he's emphasizing by saying Christ Jesus, he is emphasizing the messianic role of Jesus. And then he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Now, just make note of the fact that Paul is saying here that he's not an apostle 
as we've already read in Timothy, he's not an apostle on the basis of anything else other than the will of God, and that came to him through mercy alone. Paul is not an apostle because he took a three-month course in in becoming an apostle, or because he took some other form of clerical education, or because he uh, is so talented, or because he's so so smart. Uh, he, he is an apostle despite the fact that he was a violent, arrogant man persecuting the church. And Jesus Christ interrupted that. And by mercy and grace alone, called him the worst of sinners. A man that Paul admittedly said himself was not worthy to be called an apostle because he persecuted the church. And yet, Put, Christ put his mercy on display in Paul. So Paul is an apostle, not because of any merit or virtue within him, but by the will of God alone. Now, let's move along here. <clears throat> Paul is writing to God's holy people. This is a beautiful phrase. I'm so happy that the NIV did this. Traditional translations will read, To the saints in Ephesus even the faithful in Christ Jesus. And that's okay. I mean, saints is okay, but it's been my experience that most professing Christians have a hard time thinking of themselves as saints. Uh, would probably consider it very presumptuous to think of themselves as saints, even though God does. And so it's better to, to use the working definition of the term saint, and that is God's holy people. You by the same grace and the same will of God that called Paul to be an apostle have been called into union with Jesus Christ, have been called into union with Christ Jesus by the same mercy, same grace, and same power that converted Paul. Now, it wasn't as dramatic, obviously, for most of us, but it's still the same basis the same basis that by which Paul was called, you have been called, and to be named among God's holy people. You are part of God's holy people. Not because you signed up for church membership, not because you joined a denomination, not because you have credentials within that denomination, not because your parents are part of that denomination, not because of anything external to yourself, but because God himself called you to union with his son and made that happen by sovereign grace through the gift of faith and united you, sealed you with his Holy Spirit so that his Holy Spirit dwells in you. You are a holy person. Positionally, and now we're going to learn in the book of Ephesians how to work that out into your life so that more and more you have a progressive realization of what it means to walk in the holiness of Christ. My friends, what a powerful, glorious privilege we have not only to believe in Jesus, in the external person of Jesus Christ, but to share a union with him so that his very character, his holiness itself, is being worked out in our character, in our renewed mind, in our transformed heart, in our conformed character to his, and in our conduct. 
So you are among God's holy people. Listen, there are two extremes you need to avoid. And that is this some of this worm theology. People who tell you that you're just a low-life, rotten, depraved sinner whom God tolerates because of Jesus. That's the one extreme. The other extreme is that you're just this wonderful, lovely person that's so lovable that Jesus couldn't do anything but die for you because you were so worthy of it. You were so lovable. He just, he just couldn't help himself. He just loved you so much. So you've got those two extremes. The biblical fact is you were once in Adam, and we'll see later on in this letter to the Ephesians that we were dead in transgressions and sins. That we walked according to the ways of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. In other words, we belonged to Satan, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. We all lived among them at one time, verse 3 of chapter 2 of Ephesians says, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following his desires and thoughts. We were by nature deserving only of wrath. But God, because of his great love for us, intervened and made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And that grace in you means that you are no longer a lover of sin, but you have died to sin. It means that you are no longer an Adam. You are now in Christ, the new Adam. That means that you are no longer in the flesh, in the realm of the flesh. You are now in the realm of the spirit. Very important to understand. Those are absolutes, beloved. Let me turn real quickly to Romans chapter 8. I want you to have these foundations because this is the stuff that Christian life is made of. Romans chapter 8 tells us this beginning with verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. Do you see the dichotomy there? Two separate things. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. Listen, if you are in Christ, that's not describing you. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Now, verse 9. You, listen now carefully, you, beloved Christian, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. Very important. You are named among God's holy people. You are no longer an Adam. You are no longer uh, alive to sin, but dead to Christ. But rather, you are dead to sin and alive to Christ now. You belong to him. You are named in God's holy people. Now, there's some question, back to our text, there's some question whether or not in Ephesus was actually in the original writing. Uh, It could have been, 
may not have been. I, I happen to think that it wasn't. Uh, it, this is a general letter. It's a, a letter that was sent to, meant to be read by many churches in Asia Minor. And so it's addressed to you. That's the most important thing to understand. It's addressed to you. And so he not only are you God's holy people, but you are the faithful in Christ Jesus. Is that how you see yourself today? Because that's how God sees you. And he doesn't waste any time. Doesn't waste any time in this letter telling you that Paul is telling you, you are God's holy people. You are the faithful in Christ Jesus. You say, well, Rick, if you knew me, you would understand I'm not very holy or I'm not very faithful. Well, we're all working it out, aren't we? We're all working our ways and we all do stumble in many ways. But the fact remains that God is at work in you. God is at work in you to conform you into the image of his holy son. And then finally, verse 2, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, please hear me now. This is God's settled stance towards you. It never changes. Grace and peace is God's settled stance towards you. That's why Paul can say with complete confidence, he can write, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Both the Father and the Son have this settled stance towards you, and it will never change. I once had a woman in a grocery store uh, pull me aside. She had been listening to one of my sermons, and the title of the sermon was, God is not angry with you. And that's true. If you are in Christ, you are, you are not destined for wrath. God will not ever subject you to his wrath. He will subject you to his discipline. You are his child, and what father doesn't discipline his child? But never wrath. God is not angry with you. And this particular woman had grown up being told that God was angry and that you better be careful not to make him angry with you. And so it was a very difficult childhood, as you can imagine, spiritually. So she was so relieved and so delighted to hear that the stance that God had toward her was unconditional, permanent grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we're going to leave it there. I hope you've heard today that you are a beloved child of God. In fact, later in this letter, Paul speaks to you like that. He says, um, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the ways of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But did you hear that? Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the ways of love. What a beautiful thing. You are not a low-life, rotten sinner. You are God's beloved child, in union with his beloved Son. And the Spirit is at work in you through the Scripture to work in you and to work out of you that which God has already worked in you by his spirit. So rejoice. Rejoice in this, these realities in you. 
that we have an authoritative letter in front of us, a letter that we can be absolutely certain is true. We can be absolutely rejoicing in the truth of this letter. It's not a debate. It's not up for consideration. This, what Paul's going to write to us in this letter, beginning in the next verse, verse 3, is absolutely true. Where do you find that these days? <laughs> Everybody has their own truth these days. In a postmodern society, there's no such thing, they say, as objective truth. But here we have that treasure and right in front of us. Well, may the Lord bless you and strengthen you. May the Lord encourage you in this lesson. And may you continue to meditate on the things of the letter of the Ephesians as you learn your identity in Christ and the goodness that he has put in you in union with his Son. Amen.